I'm Erich Skruwala, and this is Rhinoceros. The critical thing for us will be exacting a political price on the people who thought that this was an acceptable thing to move forward, um, both in November and then for the folks who are not up this year. Uh, there are a lot of Republicans on that Senate Judiciary Committee who are going to start their re-election campaigns on November 7th, 2018. And so let's get ready and start being there for them. That's Leah Greenberg, the co-founder of the Indivisible Movement. I talked to Leah before the Senate voted to confirm Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. Fortunately, we've talked about a bunch of other things, too. Many of the things we talked about came back to a common thread of power. In the Kavanaugh nomination, Senate Republicans, without regard for the consequences, used the power of their slim majority in the Senate to ram through a deeply flawed nominee to the Supreme Court in spite of other potential nominees who would have been ideologically acceptable. In a few short weeks, voters will have an opportunity to exercise their power to replace members of Congress that don't represent their values. All that, plus find out what Leah likes to read in just a moment. So, this is my first podcast, and I really wanted Leah to be my first guest. I joined an indivisible group in my home state of Connecticut a few months after the election in 2016, and now I serve as its communications director. It's the most politically active I've been in over 20 years, and it probably wouldn't have happened without the Indivisible Guide. My goal with the podcast is to have interesting conversations with elected officials, public figures, and experts on a variety of topics, and I hope this is the first of many episodes. I'd love to get your feedback. You can follow us on Twitter at RhinocerusPod, Send an email to rhinocerospod at gmail.com or leave us a message at 203-941-1737. Send me your questions, your criticisms, and your guest ideas. But now let's bring on today's guest. So I'm happy uh, to welcome today Leah Greenberg, one of the co-founders of the Indivisible Movement. Leah, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for joining us today. Happy to be here. Um, so right off the bat, I, I want to talk about uh, what what caused you and Ezra to to actually sit down and write this guide and start this movement that has, you know, spawned participation all across the country. Absolutely. Um, so I'm a I'm a former congressional staffer. I got my start in D.C. Uh, working on Capitol Hill for a member of Congress from a very red district in Virginia, a Democrat. Um, named Tom Periello, uh, and had during that time um, seen, seen this very spirited uh, local resistance um, in the form of the Tea Party to the things that we were trying to do. Um, and that was a really, you know, this was the 2008 to 2010 period, and it was a, a really painful time in a lot of ways for us because uh, out of nowhere, this massive grassroots force came up and they really changed what was politically possible in DC and managed to block a lot of. Uh, the things that we wanted to do and things that would have improved people's lives. Um, and then, um, so that was a painful time, but immediately after the 2016 election, um, Ezra and I were shocked, like so many people, we were, you know, stunned. We were trying to figure out what we could do. Um, and we were seeing this uh, wave of energy all around the country that, you know, it wasn't just our, our political junkie friends who were trying to do something. It was everyone we knew. It was people from high school and college who had never been politically active before um, seeking ways to be effective. 
And, you know, what we thought we could do and what we thought our contribution could be was to take the lessons that we'd seen from the Tea Party and how they'd organized locally, how they'd pressured their elected officials, how they'd sort of changed the political calculus around the country um, and reverse engineer those lessons for everyone who was trying to get active now. And so that was the that was the original idea behind writing the Indivisible Guide. What uh, what sort of expectations did you have when you (laughs) originally sat down to write it? Well, we thought that our friends would read it, and we thought that uh, they would go home for Christmas to their families around the country, and somebody at the Christmas table would ask them, uh, what, are, what, what should we do? And they would give them the guide. And, you know, in six months, we'd get an email from somebody who said, hey, I used your guide at a town hall, and I really gave it to my member of Congress. And, you know, that would have been success for us. Um, I remember early on us saying that sort of our, our wildest success was if people in five congressional districts used this guide to approach their Republican members of Congress. Uh, we did not. We, we expected it to be sort of a contribution to this world of Google Docs that were circulating all around uh, at the time that would, you know, it would maybe be helpful for some people. It would maybe shape some of their thinking. We had no idea that people would respond to it with the enthusiasm that, that we got. So you're saying it's only slightly bigger than what you anticipated, <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> so it, yeah, I mean, it, all of this would happen. When we how, how fast did that happen? Did, was it was it immediate? The, it was pretty immediate. Um, so within a couple of hours of putting it online, um, well, so our experience was, you know, you have a Google Doc and you start seeing these like anonymous little animals in the Google Doc. Yeah. That's how we set it. <laughs> right. Um, a bird and a capybara and whatever, and so. <laughs> Um, that was sort of kicking up and, you know, it was like 50 and then it was 60 people and then it was 70 and at some point at like 96, it stopped and we were like, oh, I guess there are 96 people in the document and it's just staying there. And then we realized Google stops tracking at a hundred people in a document, um, and features started crashing and people were emailing us saying, Hey, I can't download and print it because Google stops uh, doing all that stuff. So, you know, and then suddenly we were getting these emails from people all over the country and what they were saying was, um, you know, I've already started pulling together people in my community and we were trying to figure out what we were going to do and we weren't sure. And now we have your guide and now we're indivisible Rochester or we're indivisible Tuscaloosa and we're going to be going forward and doing, putting the guide into action. And that happened, that was within, you know, within the first week. So did it, so at that point, so how did you adjust, obviously had to adjust your expectations now to the reality on the ground. So what, what was that process like? How did you and Ezra kind of figure out, all right, so this is much bigger than we thought. What do we do from here? It was a really natural process of evolution. So, you know, in the first week, like within 24 hours, we realized this was bigger than the, the, the few of us who'd written the guide could handle together sitting at the kitchen table. We pulled together pretty much anyone who we could find who would show up at our house and commit to start volunteering for us and started building out like a volunteer infrastructure you know, answering all the emails that were coming in, building a map so that people could register groups, um, building a website to host the guide, trying to answer all the follow-up questions that people were coming in with, trying to help people once Congress started uh, sort of say, you know, understand what was going on and orient their activism in the most strategic directions. Um, and really, at every stage, we were trying to sort of evolve in tandem with this field of folks all over the country who were, you know, taking ownership, taking local leadership, and, you know, starting, starting and running. Um, and so it was this question of what do they need? What are they asking us for? What can we provide uh, as volunteers? Eventually, what can we provide as an organization? Because, you know, within a month or so, it was obvious that there was a need here, that it wasn't going away, and that if we were going to really rise to the challenge, we were going to need to go all in. 
Mm -hmm. And how much is how much has your growth and your evolution uh, been driven by what's been happening in the local chapters around the country versus sort of directed from from you guys uh, nationally? Well, I think it's a combination. Um, so, I mean, it's, for us, it's always about, um, you know, evolution in tandem, right? So right. Uh, we have a set of organizational principles, and our first principle is we work for the leaders of the movement. And, you know, that's really core to us because we don't think that the world needs another nonprofit, but we do think that um, there are there is an amazing uh, movement of grassroots groups around the country um, that have organized to resist the Trump administration to replace it with something better, and that there is a lot of support and guidance and coordination that they should get um, in order to fulfill that mission. Um, and you know, in terms of sort of how we expand, a lot of it is trying to take the pulse of are we meeting the needs that we're seeing. Um, so, for example, at the beginning of the year, or for the first year that we were in existence. We had 10 organizers who were covering the entire country. Um, they had between three and eight states each. They had between um, 500 and 800 groups that had registered in each of those turfs each. You know, and they were obviously working like completely out of control hours, just trying to be responsive to all of the things that were happening and all of the questions they were getting. And um, that wasn't a great model because it was, um, you know, it was too much work for them and it was, uh, not enough support for the folks who were reaching out. Mm -hmm. And so over time we've expanded the number of organizers so that we're actually able to, to sort of right size that relationship load. What, um, that's kind of a weird question to ask maybe, but, <laughs> uh, before November 8th, what did you expect your life to be like? I mean, oh. clearly this was not it. Like, what was your plan before, like right before the election? What were you yeah. doing at that point? Well, so Ezra was working for a poverty, an anti-poverty nonprofit. Um, uh. I, my, most of my professional background is actually in human trafficking policy and advocacy. And um, I think like a lot of people who have a specific issue that we worked on, you know, we immediately felt um that the work that we were going to be doing was uh, going to be shifted dramatically. Um, I can speak for myself in human trafficking. Um, you know, people often think about it as sort of a, a crime, like a crime that's committed against people and you need like the police to come in and find the kidnappers or whatever. But it's actually really the things that make people vulnerable to human trafficking are um, a really predatory and um, restrictive border regime it's a racist criminal justice system, it's the lack of social services, it's sexism, it's, um, it's labor rights and the lack of labor rights enforcement. You know, and I could, like on November uh, 8th, looking at what was happening, it was obvious that everything that makes human trafficking happen was about to get so much worse in our country. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, my reaction was, I'm, I'm doing really good work. At the time I was managing a partnership uh, with the White House on supporting survivors of trafficking. Um, but also what we need to do right now is we need to build the political power to actually, um, you know, have the, have the laws in place that stop creating new survivors of human trafficking. Um, and so for me, it was, uh, it was a moment of like, how can I have the most impact on building that political power to change the things that I care about for the long term? Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so now that we're we're getting toward uh, year two of the of the indivisible movement, where do you see things going from here? Well, what plans or visions do you have? Well, obviously, uh, so much of it depends on what happens in November. Mm -hmm. um, 
I think, you know, and I'm, I'm very optimistic about what's going to happen no, in November. I think that we have been, people have been determinedly building the conditions for a wave for a very long time. And I see no signs that we're going to slow down in the next month and a half. And I think we, I think we can do, I think we can push over the finish line um, and take the house and, and potentially uh, make real advances in the Senate and state houses around the country. Um, I think that the challenge for us is really centrally about switching from um, a purely resistance mode to a mode where we're still resisting. We're still you know, taking on the Trump administration, um, but we're also articulating a positive vision for the future. And I think the thing that's really important there is that you know, we may have gotten activated um, in 2016 following the election uh, as a reaction to Donald Trump, but we all know that our problems were much deeper than Donald Trump. Um, they didn't start with him. They won't mm -hmm. end with him. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I think the thing that really is, is I feel very deeply is that um, a healthy democratic society that valued the lives and the equality of all of its people would have rejected Donald Trump uh, in the same way that a healthy body rejects a virus. And so the question is, you know, how did our democracy get so sick and how do we actually take it on in a way that makes it better for the long haul and yeah. to me that's about how you know what are the rules that let us get, get here right. uh what's the system that disenfranchised people such that donald trump could rise how do we change those rules so that we actually have a really genuinely representative and inclusive democracy yeah i mean i'm not i'm actually not convinced that that we did have a, a huge swell of support uh you know for for trump to be elected president and i don't think it's really been determined the extent to which you know, an unseen hand was on the scale, mm -hmm. but that doesn't, that doesn't, um, you know, we can't ignore the fact that, that, uh, he did become a nominee of a, of a major political party. That's not by accident. Right. Um, so I, I do think, I, I totally agree with you, um, that, that we, we have to look at that. Um, and I guess, you know, one big question, I was going to get to this a little later, but it seems to fit naturally now. It, for some, you know, for some of us, it, it it feels like we we may have lost like a whole section of, you know, our our fellow Americans, mm. um, you know, because if you watch if you watch rallies, um, even today, um, and if you even pay a little bit of attention, I you know I assume we'll talk about um, current nominee to the Supreme Court, but mm. you know it's hard not to watch that and wonder how we could be even seriously considering someone like that. And then I see a rally and, and the president says, oh, he's a great man. He's being unfairly treated. And, and I see just this, you know, numbers of people just nodding and whatever he says, they're willing to agree to. And I start to wonder, well, how, you know, how do we get people like that back? Not to say that they have to agree with everything we agree with, um, but there was a time when we could have principal disagreement on issues and policy um, but that they would be on a level playing field, that we would at least be, uh, you know, we would at least be talking from the same basic general pool of facts, right? Um, where, you know, we'd certainly argue about the importance of things, but we wouldn't be in this situation where, you know, you're talking about, you know, I don't know, you're talking about apples and I'm talking about oranges, and we can't even find a common language to have a conversation. That's a little depressing. Yeah. Well, and I think there are there are sort of different ways of thinking about that, right? One is to say um, it is clear that this is getting worse. Um, 
But I think it's also, there's also sort of a question about whether there was ever really that golden age of mm. um, a consensus ever. Um, mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that, one of the things that I've thought about um, around the Kavanaugh nomination is, you know, 30 years ago, actually, you had both political parties dominated by men, mm-hmm. um, and specifically white men. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and part of what's different and part of what I think is uh, uh, sort of the part of why the reaction is different is that um, the political leadership of parties has expanded. Um, the, the frame of sort of who gets to be at the table, who gets to be part of deciding whether there is a consensus at all has expanded to include women in a much more dramatic way than it did when Anita Hill was testifying. Yeah, um, and I think that's I think that has a real impact on how things go down. Um, you know, and, and more generally, um, one way to think about sort of the, the previous golden era of bipartisanship is that, you know, there was uh, a lot more compromise between the two parties. There was a lot more, um, there were a lot more independence. There was a lot more uh, switching between the parties. Another way to think about it is that we've been in a long period of ideological sorting where the two parties have become more coherent. Um, the previous kind of the previous like incoherence of the parties was actually very much um, a historical product of forces that were uh, realigning in the before and after the civil rights movement, right? So before the civil rights movement, you had kind of two different democratic parties based around um, the South and the North, and you had two different Republican parties in the South and the North. And so of course you were able to have um, a lot more, a lot more consensus because you were able to form coalitions because nobody actually had a coherent ideology that was cemented across that party. Hmm. Um, now we have two parties that actually, you know, the most liberal Democrat isn't, or the most conservative Democrat is still more liberal than the most liberal Republican. Um, and so there's a more natural, um, fragmentation. There's one party that much more clearly tries to represent the interests of a broad coalition and one party that is much more clearly moving towards sort of a white male grievance politics. And those things were always there. They were just sort of masked by some of our previous, uh, uh, the way previous ways that we had arranged our politics mm-hmm. um, personally. So my family's from Alabama um, and I definitely have the same experience of going down and talking with them and finding that, you know, we don't even have a common base of facts that we agree on anymore. The, there's just nothing, there's nothing about how we see the world that really aligns. You know, that said, before there was fake news on Facebook, there were email chains that they were forwarding right. to me that right. would say, you know, Bill Clinton and Hillary have murdered Vince Foster. And that was, you know, that undercurrent has always been there. Right, right. Yeah, I think I think one thing, though, you know, that one thing that's interesting about um, the social media landscape is that it is even, you know, as we've become more accessible, I think the the um, the need for critical thinking has decreased. Right. Mm -hmm. Because you can you can see something in a however many characters you're allowed to have on Twitter now Mm -hmm. and it gets spread around. But there, you know, there's there isn't a lot of critical thinking that has to go into either consuming that information or sending it out. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's one thing that's changed pretty radically from, you know, even, you know, even 15, 20 years ago, you know, forget 30, 40 years ago, um, you know, when I was growing up and, you know, coming of age, so to speak, politically, um, that's been a big difference, I think. Um, I don't well, know, I think, don't we talk about that enough, really? Yeah. Well, and I think the other thing that's interesting about social media is that it allows you to drop into conversations that aren't really for you, right? So, right, right. Um, you know, when my, when my relatives talk on Facebook about, um, you know, and they, they share a relatively similar conservative frame, 
I'm seeing that conversation. I'm seeing the two of them talking to each other um, in a way that I wouldn't have seen, you know, 10 or 15 years ago before there was a Facebook page that we were actually able to, you know, and so you can actually see, and that goes, that can have real positive impacts too, right? Like we are now able to, um, you know, listen to voices of folks who have been pushed to the margins in previous sort of more centralized media distribution systems, right? Um, yeah. And and it also allows us to sort of actually see the mechanics and the, the full craziness of the right-wing media machine in a way that's very scary. Right, right. Even if we can't really figure out how do we combat that at this point in time, at least we understand where it's coming from, how it's being engineered. Um, that kind of gets me to another point. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of talk about uh, like the lack of a coherent platform or, or policy, set of policy prescriptions mm-hmm. um, on the part of Democrats. And I actually wonder if that's a bad thing um, mm. because I think this election really is about and should be about a governing policy, a governing strategy. Um, so less about I want, you know, A, B, C, and D policy prescriptions versus, you know, we're going to look at how, how policy affects people. We're going to look at how um, you know, structural inefficiencies in the in the wage gap um, are affecting people, and how we can deal with that and fix it. And we're going to be governed by what's good for you know the minimum wage worker, what's good for someone who do, who can't afford to go all the way through college, for someone who doesn't have a professional professional degree. That that that's going to be what our focus and emphasis on, um, rather than talking about you know specific policies which you know, trigger people in different ways, right? Um, So you have a whole group of people who consider the Affordable Care Act to be socialized medicine that's going to end up killing them, when that, of course, is not true. Um, But certainly we could talk about, hey, I want to look at ways in which you have access to healthcare so that you don't have to make the decision um, like I've had to make this year. I have two things that I need to get fixed. I can't afford to do it this year. Um, And I'm not alone. there are lots of people like that. I see the policy prescriptions as ways to help make that better. Other people see it totally differently. So what if we talk about instead of this policy, that policy, this is how we want to govern. This is the thing that's going to motivate us and what we're going to fight for. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, I think that's a really good point. And I think in general, um, one of the things that I think is really, uh, has Democrats have struggled with is um, that we go too quickly to a laundry list of policies instead mm-hmm. of sort of taking time to sit with people and talk about what's the problem and where did it come from, right? Right. Um, and so, you know, my, one of the things that um, I, I was uh, the policy director for a gubernatorial campaign, um, and one of the things that I think was really striking in trying to figure out how did you communicate policy to people was um, people don't trust your diagnosis. People don't trust what you're suggesting on policy unless they trust your diagnosis of the problem. Mm. And I think like, that is what Trump has been very good at is he starts, he doesn't necessarily have solutions that make a lot of sense, but he, you really feel like he is channeling your sense of the problem if you're coming right. from a certain orientation. Yeah, and yeah. so I think like there's, there's sort of one, your diagnosis of the problem. Two, there's the ability to talk about that in terms of values that we all can align around. And then there's, I think, another question, which is that we have to get better at talking about power, right? Like who has power, why they have power, how it can be fairly distributed. Um, You know, that is so core to like so many of the questions that people actually have about the political system. 
so so core to people's sense that something about the political system is really broken. Um, if we don't find ways to actually talk about, you know, who who is in charge of the rules and how do we actually get to a place where the rules reflect you and what you care mm-hmm. about, then people won't trust people won't trust what we, you know, any specific policy proposal. Yeah, that's a really great point. And I also think, you know, as as I don't know, it feels maybe a little depressing that we have to think about it, but I do think that um, the labels we attach to singers are really important too. You know, mm-hmm. we just saw the president announce um, signing a new agreement with Canada and Mexico. Not a whole lot different from the agreement he walked out of, and oh. not any different than you know than the principles that were on the table when President Obama left office. But one of the big shifts he made in it was it's no longer called NAFTA. It's called what the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. <laughs> and that fits within this like America first narrative. So a lot of people will see that and say, oh, yeah, we've got a much better agreement. Why? Because our name is first. <laughs> right. But dig around and it's the same thing. Right. Yeah. You know, it's spam dressed up as pate. I don't know. Maybe you like spam. I don't know. I don't mean to, I don't mean to just spam. I yeah. don't know. But, you know, I, I, I think there's a piece of that, too, that, that we don't do a very good job of. Yeah. Um, well, I always come back to there's a there's an example that just really sticks in my mind because um, I devote a decent amount of my brain space to thinking about what were the missed opportunities in 2008 to 2010, as you can mm-hmm. tell from my origin story. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I think is really striking so very early on when they were designing the stim- or the Obama administration was designing the stimulus package, um, they had a bunch of research on um, sort of behavioral economics that led them to believe that people would, if people got a pay cut or a tax cut and they were told they were getting a tax cut, they would be more likely to save it. And if they were not told they were getting a tax cut, they would be more likely to spend it. And the goal was to spend and stimulate the economy. So basically... Uh, the Stimulus Act produced a tax cut that was like a reduction in payroll taxes for everyone. So everyone got more money because of the Stimulus Act. Um, And they didn't tell anyone about it. They didn't, you know, it didn't say in your paycheck, hey, you now have more money because of the Stimulus Act. They didn't make a big deal out of it. They wanted people to spend money. They were so committed to getting the policy right that they completely ignored anything associated with the messaging and the showcraft around it. Right. And, you know, the result was everyone hated the stimulus. They were like, oh, the stimulus is probably just another bailout for bankers. And I have no idea how it's changed my life. Um, right. And, you know, we just can't we can't ignore that um, policy is more than just the actual policy. It's also about messaging to people why government matters and helps and can change their life. Right. Right. And to and to and to build the credibility for the institutions that lead to those positive changes. Yeah. Um, and when we you know, when we allow our institutions to be undefended in that way, that leads to it creates those conditions that lead to somebody like, uh, you know, a President Trump. Right. Right. Yeah. I think. And that's one of the really big challenges right now is that we have to. Um, there are a lot of reasons why we don't trust the government as it currently stands. And we also in the long term need to, you know, fight for a government that actually works for and represents us and that we can have faith in. Right. Right. So one of the, I mean, one of the, one of the big outgrowths of the election and the organization of people through the indivisible guide is um, really huge grassroots action around the country. Um, both in terms of, you know, our representative had a town hall within a couple months of the election and they had to re they had to 
reorganized where they were doing it because it started, I think, in a library and then ended up in a high school auditorium. And eventually they had to go to a very, very large uh, space in a completely different town. And even then it was standing room only. Um, and we, you know, we've seen how like that, that can be effective, uh, both in terms of, uh, you know, preventing, preventing a Republican majority in Congress, you know, uh, from totally gutting the Affordable Care Act. And I even think, you know, Amazon's announcement today uh, that they're going to give all their workers a $15 minimum wage, I, I think has got to be influenced by all the things that we're seeing around the country politically. Do, do you feel mm -hmm. that's the case as yeah, well? Absolutely. And, and where else, you know, where else can we, can we redirect that energy in a way that, that has positive change that just goes beyond, you know, trying to stop somebody from doing something. And, and I guess maybe going toward more like what we've seen with the Amazon model where, you know, where that's led to something positive for you know, tens of thousands of people around the country. Yeah. Well, I think the beauty of um, the beauty of a decentralized movement is that there is really the freedom and the um, ability of folks to determine what is the most effective and meaningful thing for their community in a way that I think is really important. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we we're very committed to um, you know not being just a top-down decentralized organization because you know our our overall opinion is that if you tell people to do a thing, they'll do a thing. But if you say, hey, here are the tools, you are the leader, figure it out, um, they will. Their people will do so much more amazing things, um, and they're and they're capable of just a level of passion and creativity and inspiration that um, you cannot direct from any cut place. Yeah. Um, and right now I think what we're seeing is that, you know, people who got active around town halls or around advocating to their elected official did not stop there. They formed communities. They found things that they cared about, you know, in their town, um, or in their city or at the state level. And they started building campaigns and advocating around that. Um, and they also found communities. Um, one of the things that I think is really important about the Indivisible Movement was that it was responding to a need for a greater need for community in people's lives, right? Mm -hmm. We've had this sort of decades long um, atomization of American life where a lot of the communal institutions that used to be really central to, to how people socialized as adults have sort of gone away, right? Like the town, you know, town bar or, or the union or churches in many Americans' lives. Um, all of those things have sort of moved away from the center and a lot of times people don't necessarily know their neighbors, don't necessarily have a strong tie to their community, um, don't have, and, and in much, very much in a resulting way, don't have a sense of civic engagement that was often driven by those kinds of institutions. And so I think probably one really important part of um, where we see ourselves going and where we see the movement going is, um, you know, building towards a vision where social ties sustain civic engagement and vice versa. Right, right. I don't know if you read Tim Snyder's uh, little uh, book on tyranny. Um, and one of the things, one of the lessons he, he preaches in there is to practice corporeal politics, an academic word if I ever heard one. Um, but, you know, I, I think that's, that's one, of the, one of the real beauties of the indivisible movement is um, I've made, you know, friends and, and really strong friends, people I would never otherwise have met. Had right. we not had something to um, to rally around and build a community around, and I do think, I, you know, I think you're right on 
um, that that's one of the huge benefits. Um, and and is and is sustainable, right? Yeah. And that's one of the things that can be sustainable. You know, I, I don't mean to be the old fuddy-duddy about you know social media, but being able to to generate community and and personal engagement and and rallying together, whatever it whatever it's around, um, mm-hmm. is certainly a valuable a valuable tool. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. And you know, and that's a, an important thing for us is that while we obviously spread very fast via social media, while we you know reach and communicate with people virtually, uh, at the core of our model is a real faith in getting people together offline to take in-person action. And so, right. so much of what we're trying to think about is how can we support that. What's been your experience in in uh, groups that are are in like fairly solid uh, blue districts? in terms of how they're sustaining a level of engagement and activism? Yeah. Well, I think what we found is, um, one, there's a really important role for groups in very blue areas in terms of pushing Democrats to not just be, um, you know, another vote, but to be bold. Um, So there's a difference between, there's a difference between somebody who's a reliable vote and somebody who wakes up every day thinking, what can I do to bring this disastrous administration to a close? and it's really important to have a good determined grassroots constituency behind the kind of people who actually are going to be champions. So that's one thing. I think the other is that it's really clear and I'm, you know, it's clear in most parts of the country. Um, nobody has a plus representation at every level of their government. Nobody, right, right. very few people have blue representatives at every level of their government. Right. And even fewer of those, like in some places you do in fact have Democrats all up and down the ballot, but you may or may not actually have the kind of people who are fighting for your values in the Democratic Party up and down the ballot. Um, right. I'm in D.C. We have, you know, a one party state essentially in government, although we're not we don't have federal representation. Um, and we just had our Democratic, uh, like almost entirely Democratic city council revoke uh, a popular ballot measure, uh, increasing the minimum wage for tip workers. Um, so, you know, which is just to say that when I'm talking to somebody from D.C., if they say, hey, I don't have the ability to, um, you know, I don't have, uh, I, I have Democratic representation. Well, we don't, we're not there yet. <laughs> um, right. I think the same is true for Connecticut, right? Like you're right. not. Um, nobody is totally satisfied with where we are, with um, whether cities are doing what we need to do, with whether our states are doing what we need to do, with whether we're actually, you know, modeling the kind of governance that we really want to see um, in, you know, an alternate vision to the Trump administration. Right, right. Yeah, you know, here in Connecticut, of course, we have a state that, you know, people would call purple, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and at, at a certain level in the state trending red, um, the you know the the house and the senate here um used to be fairly solidly democratic whatever that means right um it didn't necessarily mean that we got the representation we needed because sometimes having too much of one party uh you know even if it's a party you agree with can lead to undesirable results if you're not holding people accountable because it leads to complacency you believe that they're upholding your values and what have you but we do have that, you know, where I live personally, uh, I'm looking all around me at state representatives who, you know, who are, are Republicans um, and, and, you know, borrow selectively from things that I might agree with, um, but then, you know, in an overarching way uh, are not doing things I think are, are appropriate for us and are certainly not things that I believe in. Um, yet at the federal level, you know, our Senator Blumenthal has uh, filed a lawsuit against the Trump administration on the emoluments clause. Sorry, the emoluments clause, 
um, that is going forward and and has been you know fairly strong and vocal um, in the current Kavanaugh uh, uh, proceedings. And we've had Jim Himes on the House Intelligence Committee. So there's a lot there that you know we go and we and we do meet with them and we talk. But sometimes I think, well, what are we pushing them on? <laughs> we you know what are we pushing them on? What are we pushing them to do? Um, and then, of course, the concern about, well, we want to keep meeting with them. So yeah. can we push too hard? You know, there, there's always the, that concern. And that's one of the tensions that I think, um, you know, many, many groups around the country face is the difference between access and power. Right. right, um, right. When we started, nobody was getting, you know, the red carpet rolled out for them at a congressional office. And at this point, um, a lot of congressional staffers are working really hard to, you know, to meet with, to regularly hear the concerns of, um, to be engaged with groups like Indivisible. And that's great. And also, um, sometimes what part of the way that, uh, part of the way that we don't end up getting the change that we need is when we confuse that access with power. Mm. Right, right. Um, so, uh, Jeff Flake today was at a conference uh, hosted by The Atlantic, and he said, uh, lately there have been so many things that simply have drug us apart. I don't know how we get back. The incentives are all the other way. Um, and I kind of want to take a stab at an answer to him and then talk about that a little bit, because uh, I really think that a lot of what has created the issue that we're talking about um, are things like gerrymandering, um, lo loss of access at the ballot and ballot measures that are restrictive and intended to suppress voting rights. Um, I spent 20 plus years in Brooklyn where the only election I ever voted in was a primary. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and even there you had a party person and then a, you know, a progressive person that was about to get creamed. So, you know, I think one of the, and I, I you know, and it's, it, what you were talking about earlier in terms of parties that were uh, less coherent, um, I think certainly plays into that as well. Um, but I also think that uh, access to um, uh, access to voting and gerrymandered districts are a huge issue that we need to deal with and address. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think I think it's um, I think it's all part of the same systemic set of problems, right? Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, I think one of the ways, like, sort of the the story that I would tell that links those things together is that um, you know, again, Trump didn't come out of nowhere. He, um, since really the civil rights era, the Republican Party has thrived by making these coded racial appeals to white people about how some group of undeserving others are stealing their jobs and sucking up public resources and threatening their safety. Um, Trump took those dog whistles and he sort of screamed them out loud. And there was this huge audience that was actually into, you know, having the dog whistle yelled out loud at them, um, which allowed him to take control of the Republican Party. But the way that he was actually able to win was because as part of that strategy, the Republican Party had also been taking aim at an entire set of really fundamental parts of how our democracy worked, right? Like they right. had been attacking, they had been suppressing voting rights, they had been attacking sort of the integrity and success of our electoral system, they had been undermining campaign finance laws, um, they had been doing gerrymandering, they were also, you know, undermining people's trust in and the freedoms of the press, um, and, and they had been sort of building this broad net meta-narrative that was designed to turn us all against each other. Um, and so, you know, I think it's, it's a, it's, true absolutely that there are forces that are pulling us apart um i do think that 
you know, there's a, a level of self-examination that has not happened among the set of folks who sort of loudly oppose Trump within the Republican Party, but don't actually do anything about it. Right. Um, you know, I think the, the thing that's most striking to me about Jeff Flake is that the only time we've actually, you know, a very small number of Republican senators at any point in the last two years could have brought the business of the Senate to a crashing halt. The only time that Jeff Flake ever actually threatened to do that was over tariffs. You know, mm. not over not over the administration's obvious ties to Russia, not when uh, James Quinn Comey was fired, not when, um, you know, healthcare was being threatened. Um, at, at no point in sort of the, the not over family separation, at no point in the sort of the slide towards authoritarianism has the have the folks who really loudly posture against Trump actually been willing to sacrifice the political capital to take a stand. Um, right. And when you do, it's over tariffs, um, which is more about <laughs> serving the donors. Yeah. And, it, you know, and it's it's so weird, given how strong his language has been um, and the fact that he's not running for anything anymore. What, what is he preserving political capital for? He is getting ready for his book tour and his uh, um, sinecure at a nice lobbying firm in D.C. and possibly a run for president in 2020. That well, is there, what well, there you go. There you go. I guess that's where he's headed. Um, <laughs> where do you think um, I want to kind of switch a little bit. Where do you think the uh, Kavanaugh nomination is going to go? What's your mm -hmm. what's your gut right now? <laughs> um, it is a that's a good question, and I'll be honest. Um, this entire situation is so far out of uh, the bounds of what's normal that I don't think that I don't think I know, and I don't. I'm not sure I trust anybody who says they know for sure either. Yeah. Um, I think what we know is, you know, the man has very obviously lied about a whole host of things in a way that's yes. borderline pathological. Yeah. Um, and, you know, any individual lie might be about a trivial thing, but perjury is not about whether it's trivial or not. It's just straight up, if you lie under oath, it's perjury. Um, and indeed, he was personally involved in impeaching somebody over a relatively trivial lie under oath. Um, so it's, it's sort of ridiculous that there's even a debate about that. Um, the, you know, the, the thing for us is... Um, it's really important for there to be as impartial and as extensive an FBI investigation as possible. The only way that that will happen is if um, the Republican senators and the Democratic senators who are still on the fence actually say that they're not going to vote to confirm him unless that happens. Um, right, right. And then what they need to do is actually believe the women who are at the center of this story. Um, you know, it's, it is a really sad commentary on our country that you need to have so many women come forward and ruin their potentially ruin their lives um, in order to, you know, build up enough, build up enough of a counter narrative to counter the word of one man who has already been proven to be a liar on so many fronts. Right. Um, and, and yet that's where we are is we're sort of, we're doing an FBI investigation when really all of us should know that he like, he is absolutely unacceptable to the Supreme court, regardless of the results of the investigation. I think I'm rambling a little bit. No, but. no, and that and that and that has nothing to do with what you feel about his particular viewpoints or his judicial philosophy, all of which I totally disagree with. But right. this is, you know, this really this nomination has now become, in my opinion, a referendum on the viability of the court. Right? Yeah. It's it's yeah. really about whether whether the integrity of the Supreme Court will remain. And yeah. that's not to say that the Supreme Court has all always had integrity. Um, I don't know if you've ever if you've ever read um, Ian Milheiser's book Injustices. 
about you know the Supreme Court in the you know late 19th century up and through I would say Brown v Board of Education. Um, you know the Supreme Court is not is not the pantheon of integrity that I think we believe it is right now, or at least we have believed it is. Um, but this really, really, I think, threatens to do serious, serious damage. Um, and when you have when you have a, a Congress that uh, has you know has such low approval ratings and lack of faith among the American people, regardless of your political persuasion, and you have a very unpopular president and a lack of um, a lack of trust in the executive branch, yeah. you know, if we lose the integrity of the Supreme Court. You know, that's a very, very dangerous situation for us to be in, in terms of preserving our democracy and preserving our institutions, particularly yeah. as we approach a huge and pivotal election mm-hmm. um, where we can't, you know, we can't be 100 percent sure that it's going to be free and fair. Yeah. That's a remarkable thing to be thinking about. Well, I don't know whether I, I feel like my role in this conversation is often just come in and say something along the lines of, wow, it's even worse than you think. Um, <laughs> but, but I think another way of thinking about it is that Republicans have really for a very long time recognized the court as a political entity in a way that actually our our constituency may not have or may not have focused mm. on much, right? And I think mm-hmm. about you know, um, the the thing that we've all sort of agreed as a nation to kind of forget, which is Bush v. Gore, um, when sure. a 5-4 majority on the court, you know, stopped the process of recounting votes in order to hand the presidency to the guy who had won fewer popular votes. Um, that was, you know, the theoretically apolitical court. Um, I think that one of the things that we discussed, you know, among uh, groups that were mobilizing around the court nomination when Kennedy retired is that uh, if you look at popular perceptions of the court and you look at polling around it, um, Democrats have long, you know, held to a belief in sort of the nonpartisan nature of the court. And, um, you know, what I think we can say right now is that the, the, you know, the sheer determination of Republicans to confirm this wildly unfit person has has opened people's eyes to some extent to the extent to which they have always understood this as a political endeavor um you know and i think like we're going back to the point about sort of we need to we need to fight for our institutions while recognizing their limitations um you know this is one of those situations where we both need to recognize that maybe the court has never been the impartial actor that we that we want it to be and also, there's a huge difference between uh, a court with Kavanaugh on it and a court with Kavanaugh not on it in terms of its future impartiality. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and really, the, you know, the way and the degree to which uh, the degree to which the Republicans are going to have to um, be utter, utter hypocrites. And I know that's not new, <laughs> but, but this is, you know, to, to elevate him to the bench given what he has done and said, independent of, of what he did 35 years ago. And, and I don't know how you uh, listen to uh, Dr. Ford's testimony and not believe it. That makes no sense to me whatsoever. Yeah. Um, you know, but even, and, 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 I don't, and I also don't understand saying, well, even if he did it, what difference does it make? I don't understand that either. But, you know, the degree to which, you know, someone like a Lindsey Graham, who said in 1999, 
if you if you're a judge and you lie, not only are you unfit to, to take office, but you should be impeached. Right. So, you know, this is a guy not only who shouldn't be on the Supreme Court, he should no longer be on the D.C. Court of Appeals. Right. And we know, I mean, in terms of the best possible outcome, the best possible outcome, I think, is that he stays on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Not best in terms of that would be best, but the best that we could hope for. Right. But but just, I, you know, when you say when you say stuff like, well, we have no historical precedent for this. This is the kind of stuff that I'm going to try and out scare you. Yeah. That's the kind of stuff that gets really scary. Mm-hmm. When we sit down and we say we have no historical precedent for these sorts of things. Yeah. 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 I mean, and, and I think like, um, I think that this is, it, it is a court fight and it is also um, one of those moments when you understand that you're watching something of enormous historical significance for um for sort of progress, right? Um, right, right. Whether, you know, this is going to be, uh, you have Republicans with a very clear incentive specifically to confirm him, and you also have a lot of the, uh, you know, the darkest forces in American politics and American culture that are pushing against um, women who just want to be believed. And, you know, the way that we come out on that, um, I, don't, I don't know what the ultimate outcome is. I think we have a really very, I think we have a very real chance of blocking him from the court. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that the critical thing for us will be exacting a political price on the people who thought that this was an acceptable thing to move forward, um, both in November and then for the folks who are not up this year. Uh, there are a lot of Republicans on that Senate Judiciary Committee who are going to start their reelection campaigns on November 7th, 2018. And so let's get, get ready and start being there for them. Too. Yeah. Yeah. I said to Jim Himes uh, in a meeting once, I said, you know, to me, the only the only way to affect meaningful change is to dole out a little, a little bit of electoral pain, right? Yep. A little electoral punishment. And I think this is certainly one of those, one of those critical moments in history where you can say this issue alone, you know, yep. makes you unfit to serve in the Senate. Well, I think that, you know, when somebody shows you that the only thing they care about is power, then right, right. let's organize to take away their power. Right, right, right. Um, so, okay, so let's go a little bit more positive. We're all mm-hmm. anticipating a wave election um, in, in November. Uh, all signs point toward, you know, taking back the House and a slim outside chance, although I'm not sure it'll actually happen, of, of um, taking back the Senate, but certainly hopefully maybe uh, narrowing the, the majority even a little bit. Um, so I remember back in uh, 1994 when Newt Gingrich came to power with the Contract of America, and you were, uh, you know, you had a front row seat to the rise, and I would say rise and fall of the of the Tea Party. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as I'm as I'm waiting for this wave to happen, I, I, you know, I'm starting to think about all right. So, what lessons can we learn from those movements that yeah. seemed like they were big structural changes and really just turned out to be the pendulum shift of power. Like Mm -hmm. how do we, how do we turn this election into not just that a a pendulum shift, but a real structural change moving forward? Well, I think that the answer is very much in your question, right? Um, The -hmm. pendulum swings back and forth, but the amount by which it swings is determined by the rules. Um, And so you know, if you get into power, and I think this is sort of a traditional problem that Democrats have. In, 20, in 2008, we came in and we focused on things that would make people's lives better. 
consistently when Republicans get into power, they change the rules to entrench their power and punish their enemies. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, and you see that across the board, you see that in terms of voter suppression, you see that in terms of gerrymandering, you see that in terms of uh, the attacks they've made on unions, for example, um, where they're knocking out one of the major sources of funding on the left um, and one of the major, you know, forces for American workers. Um, And so I think that a lot of the question is, can we, as we are campaigning, as we are, you know, building the blue wave, adopt the kind of analysis that pushes people to actually change the rules when they get back in or when they get in. Um, One of the things that I think is, and change, you know, change how politics is working. One of the things that I think is most exciting about uh, the new class of Democratic candidates who are running is how very many of them are rejecting corporate PAC dollars. Um, That's not new. We rejected corporate PAC dollars when we ran in 2008 and 2010. Um, we did it because it was actually a really good and important thing to do in red districts. Uh, it, it, it's an, an issue that appeals across, across party lines. Hmm. Um, but it is happening on a scale that was it's unprecedented this year. So you're going to have a lot, a lot, a lot of newly elected Democratic leaders um, coming into Congress who are not actually um, fundraising the way that traditionally they have. Right. Uh, you're also going to have a class of leaders who don't look like the class of 2006. You're going to have a lot more, a lot more younger people, a lot of people who have much more diverse life experiences, a lot of people who have much more uh, diverse backgrounds, uh, a lot of women, a lot of people of color. It's going to be, um, and, and a lot of LGBTQ persons. And so you're going to have a much more representative class, which is really exciting because we know that representation affects how people engage in politics and and how people mobilize for politics. Right. Um, Sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was gonna, I was just gonna jump in there because I, I, that's one of the things I'm most excited about, is is looking at this new class of candidates, and you know I think there used to be there used to be an avatar of what we would consider to be an ideal candidate, mm-hmm. military background, law enforcement background, or you know Uber millionaire, right? right. Um, and and typically speaking you know, upper white class white male, right? That had been sort of the, the, the definition of what a candidate looks like. And this new influx of, of talent coming in completely breaks that mold. Yeah. Um, you know, from here in the fifth district, we're replacing obviously Representative Esty um, mm-hmm. and the candidate running the ticker seat, Johanna Hayes, you know, national teacher of the year. She has an education background. You look at uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you know, you have people that come in um, that understand the effects of policies that get decided at that level, right? Awesome. So for decades, we've had representation that is so um, divorced from the reality of people that have to live under the effects of what gets decided in Washington. Exactly. Right? So, you know, it's one thing to be an Uber billionaire and say, you know, and sit in a diner and say you understand what it's like for the working person. Um, it's a far different thing to be a single mom who's worked two jobs, who understands mm-hmm. because they've lived it, you know, how sometimes you have to make a decision between taking a job or getting health care because sometimes the job barely pays enough to cover that or to, uh, sorry, to do childcare. You know, how sometimes your job barely covers your childcare expenses and how to deal with that situation. You know, wow. about families that are trying to figure out how to send their kids to college as the cost goes crazy about people that are, you know, that are trying to figure out how to manage their health in a way that gives them the healthiest possible outcomes without going bankrupt. You know, having people that actually have lived those issues, um, I think gives us a lot, to me, gives me a lot of hope 
that we can make some not just uh you know not just um uh i'm searching for the word not just a pendulum change but making what i call like structural change that changes the way the changes the way we we do the business of deciding what you know how washington is going to affect people's lives that's the thing that i think i find i find most encouraging about the upcoming election absolutely and i think it really goes to um as you were saying, sort of this shift in the mold of what is a viable candidate. For so long, the institutions that have been associated with um, with grooming leaders for our party, you know, they understand viability as how are you going to get your first million dollars in the door? Yeah, and so that right. has led you to candidates who can self-fund. It's led you to candidates with really deep Rolodexes. Um, it's Wall Street backgrounds. Wall Street yeah. backgrounds. Exactly. Yeah. As opposed to saying, like, who is the most inspiring teacher in your community? Who is, um, a, you know, a labor leader in the community who is deeply respected? And, like, maybe they don't have the contacts to raise money themselves. But, you know, raising money is not the, it is not rocket science. Um, and help them help them figure out how to do that and invest in them as a leader for the next 30 years instead. Right, right, right. And I think, you know, and they're, they're there are there are new platforms that clearly make that easier to do to do more right. grassroots fundraising, exactly. um, and and you know hopefully that will uh, hopefully that will fuel a, a a new wave of of leaders um, and change the change the nature of Congress in a way that reflects more what's happening to you know for most people around the country you know not just have an elite few trying to figure out what's best for the rest of us who are not elite. Exactly. Yeah. And to bring it full circle, one of the things that I'm very excited about is the indivisible uh, members and leaders themselves who are running for office this year. Uh, we right. have seen a bunch of people in, you know, in every off year, every special election so far, um, throw their hats in the ring. There are some incredible candidates who came out of the indivisible movement who are running at every level of government. Um, I am very excited to see some of them taking office next year. Yeah. So um, one of the things you guys did. Um, was uh, was to put out the national endorsements. So what was the thinking behind that and what effect have you seen from it? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So the national endorsement process was really about um, elevating candidates who were catching fire with indivisible groups around the country and making sure that they, you know, got a national platform, um, got support, and that it also allowed us to talk about, you know, who are the candidates who are coming out of, uh, who are getting support from the indivisible movement. Um, and what we've seen is, you know, we've gotten, uh, we've had some really exciting endorsements come out of that in ways that have actually been helpful for, um, you know, the party having conversations about where it's going to, where it's going to go. So I think of some of the endorsements in California congressional districts where, you know, there's a jungle primary, there's a real need to get behind a candidate so that they don't have, uh, you don't have a situation where the top two candidates are both Republicans uh, because there are, you know, 15 Democrats running indivisible groups in um, some districts really came together around uh, core candidates who represented them. And, and in doing so, they really shaped the political atmosphere so that, mm. you know, the D-Trip came in and followed or Emily's List came in and followed. Um, and that's a really exciting development. Um, in other places, we've seen, you know, really spirited grassroots uh, organizing that has powered candidates to victory. So I think of Dana Balter, um, who is running in, against John Catco in New York, um, indivisible group leader who organized uh, an incredible grassroots support base in her district to become the nominee 
Um, and then you also see uh, indivisible groups throwing in with broader progressive coalitions to to signal the future dem- direction of the party. So yeah. uh, speaking of uh, the endorsement for Andrew Gillum in Florida, mm-hmm. uh, where we you know the endorsement was made about a month before his upset win, people were um, surprised when it came through that he had gotten 85% of the vote. And then, you know, a month later, he pulls off this upset win. So it's this incredible signaling mechanism as well. Yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. So it's a way to, um, it's a way to kind of, uh, to really sort of give, we keep talking about power, but it's a way to give power back to the individual groups organizing rather than have our candidates essentially be directed by sort of a national party or even a state level party. Um, It sounds like it's a way to really, um, to allow the people doing the the day-to-day grassroots work to say, this is who we want representing us and and, and we're willing to go to the mat to make sure they get elected. Yeah, and we're still experimenting with how we can adapt the model. So actually uh, just in the last couple of weeks, we sent out um, a fundraising appeal to folks on our list on behalf of the indivisible candidates who are nominated. Uh, mm-hmm. And that went really, that was really uh, well received. And so people are very enthusiastic and now we're going to be able to, you know, provide additional financial support for grassroots funding, financial support for indivisible candidates who've actually received the national endorsement. Yeah, that's what, you know, it's one of the things that we've been able to do here is to say, you know, Jim Himes does not need more money. He's got plenty. Um, and he actually said that to us, that I don't need money. So don't, don't give me any money. So we've been able to then direct that to places where, you know, we think they're candidates who can make a big difference. So, you know, we, we sent money toward Randy Bryce, we sent money toward Better O'Rourke, and in places um, uh, all around. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so, okay, so we've been talking for a while, um, <laughs> but I just want to like two more minutes, just because <clears throat> I know you talk politics probably 30 hours a day like 10 days a week. I was wondering if you want to take just two minutes to talk to me about something that's non-political, like a book that's not, you know, was not Bob Wood, written by Bob Woodward or by a political candidate. Um, Tell me, what are you reading these days? Um, So I am reading, uh, I'm a big fan of, like, I'm a big fan of two kinds of historical fiction. Historical fiction that is, like, uh, incredibly painstakingly accurate or historical fiction that is bonkers ridiculously in it. Uh, nothing in between. Nothing in between. And I am rereading um, Hilary Mantel's uh, Thomas Cromwell series, uh, which is, um, it's this, it's Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies, and it's about the prime minister uh, to Henry VIII during, uh, you know, while Henry VIII was having one wife, getting rid of another, et cetera. Um, yeah. It's just this extraordinary uh, historical epic and really one of the coolest books I've seen about sort of how power works. Um, and And it's just, Fabulous and wonderful. Anyways, that's in sort of the first vein of the the very realistic. Um, also, a fan of shows like Rain, which is the, mm. the ridiculously unrealistic. <laughs> oh, that's awesome! Yeah, um, Philip Ross' The Plot Against America was one I read, which was the Ooh. What Happens if Charles Lindbergh? What happened if? It, what would have happened if Charles Lindbergh had won uh, the presidential yeah. election he ran in? Um, I'm really interested in, and I find that interesting too. I always um, am very interested in how little moments in history could go one way or the other mm. and just how much luck is involved in the way our history has progressed. Like I'll just say, you know, as we close out, you know, I feel very lucky 
as someone here in you know southwestern Connecticut that you and Ezra did what you did. Um, you and I wouldn't be talking today had that not happened. And that's, you know, a, a real interesting moment in history where maybe if you hadn't done it, I don't know what, where we would be right now. Um, and I don't know what the world would look like. Um, and so I'll just say that as a way to say thank you for, you know, everything you guys are doing. And um, just know you've got some fans up here in Connecticut. Um, well, thank you. You've got fans in D.C. Um, <laughs> we're really, we don't know what we would be doing either. And we're just incredibly grateful every day that we get to wake up and organize with this incredible nationwide movement. Great. Well, hey, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And uh, good luck with everything. And um, hopefully we'll, we'll be toasting a victory in, a, in 38 days. Very soon. Yeah. All Great. right. Bye. Take care. Bye. Well, that's going to wrap up our first episode. My thanks to Leah Greenberg for being my guest today. Thanks also to uh, Joe Luciano and all my friends at uh, ICT4 for their support. And thanks to you for listening. Until next time, be well.